I always liked going to school. Does that sound crazy to you? I know some of you are with me on this. You looked forward to learning and seeing your friends, but others, you couldn't wait to get out. You were that student who stared at the clock all day long, as if the more you concentrated on the clock, the faster the dial would go. For you, as you were a child, you lived for the playground and for lunch. And a good day for you was based on the fact that your mom had slipped in a delicious new snack in your bag. That made your day. And some of you are in school right now, and for some it's easy and you love it. For others it's more difficult. It's more of a challenge. Well, I loved school, uh, but never more than in my biblical studies after university. I enjoyed my classes, I enjoyed my professors, and so I was excited when finally, in my last semester, I was able to take a class on evangelism. I was thrilled about this class. I had heard that it was a breeze, it was an easy class. We had just one major paper due, and that was outlining the contents of the gospel, and then writing about how we would share the gospel with a non-believer. So I thought, no problem, piece of cake, I worked on my paper, I got it just right. And you know that feeling that you have or had when you turn in an amazing paper, right? You're really excited. I had that feeling on that day. But even more so, I was more excited when on the next classroom day, I saw the professor with a thick stack of our papers. He was going to turn them back. So I was excited. The excitement was building. I couldn't wait to turn to the back and see my big, shiny A. Well, that was me. I couldn't wait to get it back, to bask in my glory as the king of evangelism. (laughs) I couldn't wait to read that I was the best student that the school had ever had. And so I sat in eager anticipation. And I got my paper back, and I quickly turned to the back. And what did I see? A big, shiny, red F. I had failed evangelism. Your pastor, your senior pastor failed evangelism. I failed it. I mean, it was evangelism. I I thought it was easy. So I rummaged through my paper to find an explanation for this failing grade. And I finally found one on another page. It was just four words. You forgot the resurrection. I had left out the resurrection, and if that wasn't enough, there was a big shiny red exclamation point at the end, just to rub it in, just a bit. I thought to myself, no way I forgot the resurrection. So, as any student would do, I was in denial, and I flipped through my paper, I read back through it really quick, so I could go up and prove to my professor that he had missed it. But alas, in my paper, in my gospel presentation, Jesus was still dead. He was still up on the cross. He hadn't been risen to new life. And so I failed. Now, why is this such a big deal? Why did my professor fail me? I mean, I had mentioned God. I had started with God's holiness, with God's righteousness, that he created the whole world, and then I moved to man. I talked about men and women and our sin, that we have rebelled against God, that we, have, we had usurped his throne, that we created this chasm between us and God. We were unreconciled and deserving death. And then I moved on to Christ, the Savior, whose blood had covered our sins. He had taken away the sins of the world. 
And I even ended with a response, calling people to repentance and belief. I had done all those things. Why was that not good enough? Well, this morning, how important do you think the resurrection is to the Christian faith? I mean, it's the cross that we wear around our necks. So what does that mean regarding the resurrection? Is it just that an empty grave would look silly as a piece of jewelry? Or does the resurrection play second fiddle to the cross and other Christian teaching? Well, this morning we're going to look a little more deeply at the resurrection of Jesus. We're going to spend some time answering those questions. If you haven't turned yet to 1 Corinthians 15, we'll be looking at that just a little bit, kind of on and off. Next week we'll be back in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, It'll be good to get back into that great gospel. But this morning we're going to look and answer three questions. Three questions regarding the resurrection. First... We're going to ask, why is Jesus' resurrection important to us? Why is it important? Secondly, how do we know Jesus rose from the dead? How do we know? And thirdly, how should the resurrection affect our daily lives? How should it change us? How should it affect us? So, three questions this morning. Let's start with the first Question, why is the resurrection important to us? Well, did you catch that in the reading this morning? It was all over Paul's writings. Look at verses 13 and 14 again. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. And then look down at verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is is futile, you are still in your sins. He goes on to say, you are to be most pitied among men. You know, Paul's saying, guys, the resurrection is not just an important part of the Christian faith. It's not just something that has happened. It's extraordinarily important because if it didn't happen, then Jesus is dead. Our faith is in vain. It's void of any content. It means that I would be up here each week, and as I preach on Friday mornings, it would be like a bag of wind being poured out from the front, empty, hopeless. The great Christian philosopher Yaroslav Pelikan has said, if Christ is risen, nothing else matters. And if Christ is not risen, then nothing else matters. What he's saying is, if Christ has risen from the dead, then that's it. Nothing else on earth can compete with Jesus. Nothing else matters. If Jesus is God in the flesh, and even death couldn't hold him down, then we worship him and him alone, and everything else this world has to offer becomes like what Paul says in Philippians. It all becomes just a bunch of rubbish, meaningless, It's like the author of Ecclesiastes says, it's like chasing the wind. There's no point to it. But if Christ hasn't risen, and this life is all there is, then nothing else matters because we're all going to die, and there's no hope in this life, and there's no hope for a life to come. No, the resurrection is a huge deal to us because if Jesus didn't rise, then Christianity is a lie. It's a sham. 
If Jesus didn't rise from the dead like he said he would, then we can't believe anything that he said. And Christianity becomes the meanest and the cruelest hoax ever. Because on Friday mornings, we'd all be gathering together like this and we'd be singing to a dead man. We'd be praying to a dead man. We'd be preaching about a dead man, worshiping a dead man. And when that offering basket comes by you, you'd be giving money to a dead man. We'd be trusting in a dead man. If Jesus is dead, then none of this matters. Then the planting and starting of Redeemer Church of Dubai was futile. It was a waste of time if Jesus is dead. No, Paul is saying here that if Jesus didn't rise, if there really isn't an Easter, then go home. Stop the singing. We'd be pitied among all men for wasting our time in small groups, for wasting our time discipling our kids, for wasting our time serving in the church and sharing the gospel with non-believers. Because if Jesus is dead, your faith is dead and you are still in your sins. And so the resurrection is absolutely crucial. This is why Paul says in verse 3 that he was passing on something to us of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and he was buried, that he was raised from the dead on the third day. No, friends, if you don't have the resurrection, then you don't have the Christian faith. It's gone. It's futile. So that's the answer to the first question. The importance of the resurrection is huge for us as Christians. It's huge for us as a church. Well, that brings us to the second question. The points should come up on the board. There's lots of points and lots of subpoints and subpoints of subpoints today. I got a little happy with the points. So hopefully you can follow as we move along here on the projection screens today. So the second question. We know the resurrection is important. Well, how do we know Jesus actually rose from the dead? Now, we could spend all all the time this morning just talking about how God's word is true and faithful and we believe it. So we take that as a presupposition that God's word is given to us, inerrant, without error. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at his word. We're going to see what it has to say to us. And my prayer for you this morning, my prayer, if you're a Christian and you're here, I pray that your faith would be strengthened this morning and encouraged with these truths and that you'd leave here hopeful in the resurrected Christ. That's my prayer for you. If you're here and you're not a believer, then we're so thrilled that you're here. We know it's not an accident that God has brought you here this morning. See, for you, this question of the resurrection is huge because if Jesus really did rise from the dead then this is of huge importance to you. If he rose, it means that he is in fact God and you must listen to everything he has to say and you must follow him. He demands your allegiance and obedience. So how do we know Jesus rose from the dead? I want to mention three reasons this morning that we can be confident that he rose from the dead. Three things and then some subpoints from there. First, The tomb was empty. Sounds simple, but it's a true fact. The tomb of Jesus was empty. It was empty. Several reasons for this. One, early biblical witnesses attest to it. 
The passage we read from 1 Corinthians 15 is Paul there quoting from a very early tradition of the resurrection of Christ, just a few years after his death. And the Gospels all give independent accounts of the resurrection. You know, when you look through history, I studied history at university. As you study history, if you find two independent accounts of the same event saying the same thing, then you leap for joy that perhaps what you found is true. And you believe it. Well, in this case, we have no less than six independent sources, all among some of the earliest materials found in the New Testament. And they all mention that the tomb was empty. So early biblical witness. The second, he was buried in an identifiable tomb. You know, you may have heard that perhaps they misplaced Jesus or they misplaced the tomb or they forgot where the tomb was. Well, this is nonsense because all the Gospels mention that Jesus was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. This is rather shocking to us because he was actually a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was a Jewish high court made up of the 70 leading men of Judaism. And therefore it was clearly known and identifiable which tomb was Joseph's. It would have easily found it. It was easily identifiable to all because of his leadership and stature. Well, thirdly, we know the tomb was empty because the Jewish leaders knew the tomb was empty. The skeptics knew that the tomb was empty. There was never a debate on to whether this tomb was empty or not. No, his body was gone. And so we see in Matthew 28, 11 through 15, that the Jews were having to figure out a way to explain the disappearance of Jesus' body. Christians were saying Jesus rose from the dead, and so the Jewish authorities had to, had to quench this truth, and so they came up with a little story. Listen to these words from Matthew 28, 11 through 15. It says, When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And the story has been wide, widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. The Jews weren't denying that the tomb was empty. They didn't think Jesus was in there. No, they knew he wasn't, and they had to figure something out. The question for them, the question for everyone from the very beginning was what happened to the body of Christ? The Jews had to come up with an answer, and so they entangled themselves with this absurd argument that the guards had fallen asleep and that the disciples had gone in and stolen the body of Jesus. So that's the third point. Fourthly, it was women who were the first to see the empty tomb. Each gospel says the first witnesses were women, and this was especially problematic for the early church. It was a problem because sadly, in their society, the women had an especially low status. Their testimony was considered worthless. They weren't even allowed to testify in the legal courts of their day. They had no power, and so there was no possible advantage to the church to recount that the first witnesses were women. It would only undermine their testimony. And so it is absolutely remarkable that the chief witnesses to the empty tomb were women. The only possible explanation to why women were depicted as meeting Jesus first is if they really had 
You could never make up a story like this. You would never do it. It would hold no weight. You would have choosed esteemed men in society because it would have given you some credibility for your story. And finally, fifthly, the tomb was empty because the disciples proclaimed that it was empty from the very beginning. Paul's earliest letters just after the resurrection claimed that Jesus rose bodily from the dead. There was, it was written through eyewitness testimony of men who were there, meaning that the tomb must have been empty. No one would have believed Paul's preaching if Jesus had still been in the tomb, if they could have produced his body. No, the evidence is clear. The tomb of Jesus was empty. That's the first answer to the question, how do we know Jesus rose from the dead? Well, the second answer is that the resurrected Jesus appeared to a multitude of eyewitnesses. This wasn't just a mere occurrence on one or two occasions. Jesus appeared to a multitude Look at verses 5 through 7 of 1 Corinthians 15. He documents the witnesses. And that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. This was a remarkable claim. Do you see what Paul is saying here? We have an indisputably authentic letter written by the Apostle Paul, a man personally acquainted with the disciples, and he reports that they actually saw Jesus risen from the dead. Look at this list of all Paul includes. I mean, first we have Peter. I mean, he wouldn't have been a good candidate to make up. He had just denied Jesus on three occasions. I mean, you think that this would have ended his life with Jesus, that God would have found someone else to appear to, but by God's grace, he reveals himself to Peter. And then he appeared to the disciples, and then to the 500. I mean, this comes as somewhat of a shock. I mean, 500 people at one time? This was a risky statement for Paul. It's a risky statement if it wasn't true. I mean, 1 Corinthians was a public document. It would have been a letter that would have been written out loud to the community of people. And so Paul was inviting anyone who doubted Jesus' resurrection just to go and talk to any of the witnesses that had seen him. I mean, it's a bold challenge that he couldn't have made if they hadn't seen Jesus. And then Jesus appears to James, the Lord's brother, Now remember, Jesus, his family didn't believe in him. Remember, during his life, they mocked him. They ridiculed him. They made fun of him. They didn't listen to his teaching. They were skeptics. They didn't believe he was the son of God. They were embarrassed. And yet the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that this same James became the leader for the entire Jerusalem church. And that he was stoned. He was stoned to death for his belief in his brother. Now, why did his life change? It's because the resurrected Jesus appeared to him. One scholar has said the conversion and martyrdom of James is one of the greatest proofs of the resurrection. I mean, his life was completely altered, completely changed because he had seen the risen Jesus. Then he appears to all the apostles. This was a larger group beyond just the twelve 
But he appeared to one more, Paul writes in verse 8, that he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born, for I am the least of the apostles, don't even deserve to be called one. No, Paul says, I'm just reporting what happened. Remember, I saw Christ. I was on my way to Damascus. I was on my way to Damascus to kill and murder Christians. I was going to pull them out of their homes to kill them, to persecute them because of what they were believing. And then on the way to murder them, I saw Jesus. And I was blinded. And instantly in that moment, my life was changed. We see that in Paul's life, a drastic 180 degree change. He gave up everything that he had worked so hard for. He left his position as a respected Jewish leader and he started preaching Christ. He entered a life of poverty and suffering because on that day, outside of Damascus, he saw the risen Lord. So here Paul was probably probably the least likely guy to fabricate the resurrection. He was a guy that lived a life of fame and wealth. And yet by turning to Jesus, he now faced a life of persecuted poverty. So why does he make this turn? Because he saw Jesus. The Bible is filled with other sightings, other sightings among the apostles. We see that he appears to Thomas and then to the other apostles, to Mary Magdalene, to Cleopas, and others. The book of Acts is littered with more appearances of the resurrected Christ. All these appearances were written down. They were verifiable, proving that Jesus had in fact raised from the dead. So that's the second answer to the question, how do we know he rose? The third answer and proof that Jesus rose from the dead is the origin of, and growth of the Christian church. It's the beginning of the church. Remember, before Jesus died, he had no following, right? I mean, of course he had people around him, people that wanted to see him perform miracles, people that wanted to be healed, but he didn't have a group of worshipers coming around him, right? Even his disciples betrayed him and left him at his time of need, right? So much so that Joseph of Arimathea was the one who buried him. I mean, he was on the Sanhedrin that condemned Jesus to death. He gave Jesus a burial. His disciples were were nowhere to be found. But something happened after Jesus died. These cowards who fled as he was dying, who had abandoned all hope, were transformed in an instant, and they abandoned everything to preach that Jesus is the Messiah. They spent their entire lives proclaiming that without any payoff, humanly speaking. In fact, it was just the opposite. They experienced hardship. They were willing to die for their faith. Now, it's true that other religious people might die for their religion that they had learned and were persuaded. But in this case, the disciples were willing to die for something that they had seen with their very eyes. They were willing to die for someone that they had touched with their hands. And when you have 11 credible people with no ulterior motives, with nothing to gain and a lot to lose, who all agree that they observe something with their own eyes, then you have some difficulty explaining that away. 
No, the disciples were able to know that what they were dying for was true because they had seen the risen king. If you don't want to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, you must come up with a historically feasible explanation for the birth of the church. Because not only did the disciples' lives change, we see that the masses are converted quickly in the book of Acts, so much so that there are thousands of Jewish converts in the first five weeks after the crucifixion. It's remarkable because this crowd of Jews, in the moment they became Christians, they gave up hundreds of years of of traditions that defined them. I mean, they gave up their livelihood. I mean, think about this. The Jews, since the time of Moses, were practicing animal sacrifice after animal sacrifice. And on the Day of Atonement, they'd offer a sacrifice once a year for the sins of the priests and the sins of the people. And all of a sudden, they believe, see the risen Lord, and no longer did they offer any more sacrifices because they had come to believe that Jesus was the final and perfect sacrifice that the Old Testament pointed to. They instantly stopped obeying the Mosaic law. They stopped keeping the Sabbath by not doing anything on Saturday and instead began worshiping on Sunday, on the day that Jesus rose from the dead because Christ had fulfilled the law in his life and he was in fact their true Sabbath rest. Their expectation of a political Messiah, that a Messiah would come and would take over the Roman armies, that expectation for that world ruler changed instantly as they began to see that their Messiah was a suffering servant. No, everything changed because they had seen Jesus rise from the dead. Or they had heard about it from someone who was willing to give up their life to follow him. And so the church was started and the church has grown ever since. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The undeniably empty tomb testifies to this. The hundreds of resurrection witnesses testify to this. And the beginning of the growth of the church testifies to this. No, there is no question that our Savior is alive. He's alive. But this morning, I don't want us to just see this as a theological truth. I don't want this just to be mere data that has now filled up our minds. There's just some theological truth. No, I want us to see that this truth of the resurrection, that Jesus is alive, I want you to see that this truth has vast implications for your life. It has vast implications for how you live. And so I'd like to move to the final, the third question that we are going to look at this morning. How should the resurrection affect our lives? How should it affect us? How should it change us? Well, it does so in many ways. Just to name a few. One, it gives us strength. It gives us strength. We are reminded by Paul in Ephesians 1, 19 through 20, when he says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated at the right hand in the heavenly realms. Fellow Christian, what Paul is saying here is that the same power, 
The same power that rose Jesus from the dead. The same power that brought up a dead man from the tomb and gave him new life. That same power is at work in you. You see what he's saying? That same power is at work in your life. It gives you strength. That power gives you strength to fight sin. This power that rose Jesus from the dead gives you strength to fight your pornography addiction or temptation. I don't mean just getting software on your computer or getting an accountability partner. And those things are all good. No, the power of the resurrection gives you strength to help you defeat your sin and to reject those temptations on an ongoing basis. The power of the resurrection gives you strength. It gives us strength to be bold in proclaiming Christ. It gives us courage to tell everyone around us that Jesus died and rose again. It gives us power and strength and courage to proclaim even in times of persecution. For those of you who are in school... Glad to see so many of you up in, up in the front. I always appreciate when you sit up in the front and are attentive in the sermon. So thanks for encouraging me in that way. See, the power of the resurrection gives you strength to fight off any peer pressure you find at school. It gives you the strength to resist the temptations of sin, to resist lying, to resist cheating, to resist drinking, to remain pure until your wedding night. And then to help you remain pure and faithful to your spouse for the rest of your lives. Christ's resurrection gives you power, that same power, to face anything you're facing in school. That same power that has raised Jesus from the dead also gives us strength to make wise choices. It helps us fight the temptation of materialism. It reminds us that this life, this life is not as good as it gets. And that we should invest our time, our money, our resources, and energy in everlasting treasure. It helps us to say no to ourselves and yes to the kingdom of God. Now the resurrection power gives us strength. It's utterly comforting, utterly encouraging. But not only that, the resurrection also gives us hope. It gives us hope. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we know that every promise he has ever made to us will be fulfilled. We know that everything else he said will come true. That there will be a final accounting. An actual time is coming when evil will be once for all defeated. That all of God's children will attend the funeral of death. Isn't that a great picture? That we will attend the funeral of death because death is going to die and mercy will reign forever. And so we can have hope in this world regardless of what you're going through. I know some of you, some of us are going through tough and difficult times. Some of you are struggling with your faith this morning. We are reminded that because he has risen, we are not in our sins that we are declared righteous, that we are a new creation, that we are born again. That there is nothing we can do to earn our salvation and there's nothing we can do to lose our salvation. No, when God writes our names in the Lamb's book of life, he doesn't do it with an eraser handy. No, it's permanent. It's written permanently in his blood and he holds us in that secure place for all eternity. It is finished And that gives us the endurance and perseverance 
to move forward in any trial. It gives us perseverance to not grow weary. Now, if you or someone you know is suffering physically and maybe even facing death, the resurrection gives us hope as we are reminded that this isn't the end of the story for us, but that we will be raised with him with new bodies. And I I love thinking about this, even as I typed up this very sentence this week, as I felt the pain in my trembling arms, I rejoiced at this wonderful truth, that as Jesus rose from the dead, he will raise us also. That the resurrection is our answer to suffering on earth. That he's our hope. I love thinking about how my body won't hurt anymore. How I won't worry if I can pick up my son again or strain to type a sermon. Because this body is not the end of the story. Your body is not the end of the story. No, Paul says our resurrection bodies will be imperishable. They will be glorious, they will be powerful, and they will be spiritual, and they will be perfect, and we will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. And death will have no sting. Death has died, love has won, and Christ has conquered. And for all eternity, he reigns invincibly over the universe. So friend, if you're suffering today, as Paul has said, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now Christians, if you're hurting today, if you're even facing death, or when the time comes for you to face death, the resurrection is our hope that in the moment you die, you will be with Jesus. Friends, where do you tend to look for your daily hope? Where do you tend to look for your hope? Is it in the things of this world? Your marriage, your family, your school, your work? All of those things will eventually disappoint you. Only hoping the resurrected king will never disappoint. The resurrection gives us hope. The resurrection gives us strength. The resurrection also gives us a relationship with Jesus. Friends, this is so wonderful. The resurrection means that Jesus is alive. And so we are able to be in a personal relationship with him. I love the picture at the end of John's gospel. It's a beautiful picture of Jesus as he appears to the disciples for the third time at the very end. He fills the disciples' nets with fish. Then he tells the disciples just a beautiful phrase. He tells them, come and have breakfast with me. And they eat together. I love this beautiful picture of fellowship with Jesus. I mean, there are thousands of things that disciples and Jesus could have been doing. There's work to do, there's fish to catch, there's people to save, there's sermons to preach. And yet they sit with Jesus. And Jesus delights in them. And they, enlighten, they delight with Jesus. They delight in the King who's risen from the dead. I love that picture. And yet as I meditated on that this week... 
I wonder if this type of fellowship characterizes our lives here at Redeemer. And is it really possible that we can sing of our love for Christ on Friday, but have no time for Him on Sunday? Friends, have you allowed yourself to be so busy with work on earth that you don't have time to long for heaven? I like how Paul Tripp has said it. Everything we do should be with one eye on the present and one eye on eternity. One eye always on the present, but one eye always on the prize, always on Christ. And yet we get so busy. I'm afraid here in the UAE, we live such hectic lives. There are so many things to fill our days with. I mean, could it be that we keep ourselves so busy, so on the run, so distracted by the events of our day or the plans of the day to come that we have little or no time for Jesus? Now, I want to say this isn't the fault of our circumstances. This isn't the fault of the UAE. No, your struggle in relating to Jesus isn't caused by the length of your commute or the number of little kids in your house. No, this place hasn't caused your spiritual decline or dryness. No, your circumstances haven't kept you from God. No, it's a choice. It's a decision that you have made. It's a decision that I've made. Because whether you have a house full of kids or whether you're single and you have what seems like all the time in the world, it's easy for us to fill our hearts and our schedules with affection and activity for so many things that we have very little space to find our satisfaction in Jesus. But the resurrection... The resurrection means that Jesus is alive. He's alive. I mean, do you see this morning how radically life-changing this truth should be for us? No, it changes how we spend our time. No, we yearn to spend our time with Him. Yet it's easy for us as Christians to know about Jesus, to know facts about Jesus and not be engaged in a personal relationship with Him on a regular basis. As your pastor, oh, how I long for our church to know and love Jesus. I'm ready for everything else in our church to fail before this. I'm ready for every ministry to shut down before I let this chief priority fail. That we would walk with him. That we would be in relationship with him. That we would memorize scripture. That we would meditate on the gospel. That we would pray. But you know that Jesus, because he's he's alive, he sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you at all moments of every day, if you would pray, if you would come to him, if you would talk to him. He's alive. Our Savior is alive. Friends, this gives us great joy. It gives us great joy this morning and every morning. But if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you're not a follower of Christ, need to know that this Jesus, God in the flesh, lived the perfect life. He died on the cross and he was resurrected from the dead. Now the reason all this took place, the reason he died and rose, was so that he could reverse the effects of our sin. From Adam and Eve until today, we have rejected a holy and perfect God. And we are all under his righteous judgment. And in fact, the Bible says, interestingly, all of us, will rise from the dead. 
Yet Hebrews 9:27 gives us a sober reality. It says, "Man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment." See, we all die, we'll all be raised. Those who have believed in Jesus for salvation will be ushered joyfully into paradise, into heaven. And those who haven't placed their faith in Jesus will face judgment and God's wrath for all eternity. Friends, if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus, let this serve as a loving reminder to you. Remember back in verse 3, Paul said that this matter of the gospel of Christ's death and his resurrection is a first. It's a first importance to you. There is nothing more important than this gospel, this good news that he died and he rose. So let this be a living reminder to you of what he has done. And perhaps if you've never heard this message, maybe you're new and you've never heard of what Jesus has done, let this be a loving encouragement that you need a Savior, that there's no way around it. We all sin. None of us can attain the righteous requirements of perfection except by relying on the perfect sacrifice of Jesus in our place. Nothing. Now, friends, turn to him today. Turn to him so that you can have strength in this life. Turn to him so that you could have hope in this life and in the life to come. Turn to him so that you could have a relationship with him. Now, turn to him so that you could be forgiven of your sin. The Bible says that if you do that, you shall be saved because the resurrection was God's way of stamping paid in full right across all of history so that nobody could miss it. You know, the happy ending of the resurrection, the reason we sing happy day is because the resurrection has swallowed up the sorrow of the cross. It has swallowed up all sorrow And even in our most difficult days, we can rejoice, we can have hope, and we can leave here this morning with our hearts filled with joy that our Savior is alive. Let us go to this living God now together in prayer and thank Him for what what He has done in our lives. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we were once weak But we are encouraged this morning that by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, we are now strong in grace. It is in this strength that we can stand against the devil's lies. It is in this hope that we can rejoice even when faced with trials on every side. We can do this because we know that the outcome is secure. We know with certainty that Jesus rose from the dead and that one day, He will raise with us to be together with him for all eternity. Oh, Father, we look forward to that day, and we pray that it would come soon. Oh, would Jesus come back soon? Would your kingdom come? We pray this in the risen name of Jesus. Amen.